0: I have begun my record. I too have begun my record. Cool. cool. Just open you up.
1: I'll split the windows properly. And three, two,
0: one, collapse. That's what these cultists are always saying too. Let me just open you up. Because they like to... What? No, go ahead. I did a sawing motion. <laughs> <laughs> ouch, ouch, ouch! <laughs> Hello! Hi. And
1: welcome to Got the Runs, the comics podcast with all the sexual
0: chemistry of... Nuff said. <sighs> I mean, let's face it. Was Zack Overkill a bad guy? Duh. But Josephine is really more of a might seduce your dad guy. Why are you is this
1: <laughs> why are you behaving like this today? Uh, <laughs> you're listening to Got the Runs Nights <laughs> a rare evening record. I feel like you have perhaps gone off the deep end as you tend to do when the moon is out. I <laughs> kind of threw to you, and you immediately picked up a can of Coke Zero to drink
0: it you know. <laughs> Oh, and I see that it's a, it's a Coke evening all around here on Got The Runs. DCB, a yeah. Coke bottle. <sighs> I, of course, am the snooty eye who knows that he's not drinking Coke. <laughs> I'll, I'll tweet about the Coke Zero commercial later, and you guys can... Out there, all appreciate my impression of the tongue. Uh, I mean, the eye going. You stupid tongues! I tried to think of what they said,
1: but I accidentally thought of the commercial uh, for Eggo French Toast, <laughs> where he goes, "I am Eggo French Toast sticks. You are round. You are an Eggo waffle." <laughs> <And> <laughs> that's just one mm. of many things that are stuck in my head. Uh, of a permanent nature. Yes, yes. sad to say. <laughs> we are talking about of course we are I I always want to say coming to an end, but no there's still <laughs> several episodes yeah, left. quite a
0: ways to go uh,
1: of our mini series on the work of Ed Brubaker. We are covering Fatal Issues 1 through 11 and this one is crazy as well. <laughs> <laughs> crazy in a
0: similar way to Incognito or in a different way? Are you asking if I liked it? Yeah, basically. I did like it. <laughs> oh, the big reveal. This,
1: you know, considering that he has basically like, you know, sort of been doing some form of genre pastiche for the lo- like, you know, the five years previous to this. Mm-hmm. I guess, ostensibly, this is meant to, like, evoke horror. Not (laughs) comics, though, right?
0: Well, there's, like, some sort of, like, eerie, you know, 50s, like, EC comics, for sure, that are, like, kind of laced in here. But definitely not in the same way as, like, I feel like Last of the Innocent was more so had had things to say about like horror comics specifically this is very much like lovecraftian literary horror right but then also not <laughs> like
1: it is like a weird mashup of like a lot of different things and it is sort of like doing you know i don't want to say pastichey things but i think it is sort of trying to ground itself in sort of like Mm -hmm. the trappings of genre a lot of the time. Yeah,
0: I will say the other thing that he references a lot in interviews is Hammer, like Hammer Mm, films. Hammer horror movies. Yeah, so those are like the classic, you know, Dracula, The Mummy, kind of like B-horror movies, which, uh, I mean, I haven't seen a lot of those, but I gotta say I don't really see it as much.
1: They are also... There's like the universal monsters, and then they're they're sort of like the '50s, '60s sort of like edition of your Frankenstein's and your un and your Draculas and all that. Sure, but yeah, I mean, like this is so crazy because <laughs> like an issue <laughs> in the first like 15 pages, or so because like I think there is a tendency at this point, having done you know a lot of criminal. And mm-hmm. incognito, I feel like it's like oh, like what is he kind of trying for here? And the issues Ira did not have any back matter, which I kind of liked. <laughs> it's it's almost <laughs> it's almost better when he's like not explaining himself, especially in this situation. Because I'm like, how could you possibly <laughs> think of this? I feel like some of the mystique would be lost if I mm-hmm. if he
0: was like, it was this. <laughs> Yeah, I think, like, I'm not sure at what stage the, like, horror element started to work itself in more, but as far as I can kind of piece it together, I think the idea was initially, like, basically, I'm going to deconstruct the femme fatale, like, archetype and turn her into, like, a human with, like, real character and real substance. And then as he was, like, kind of going through it, he was like, but, like, why are men so obsessed with her and then i think he was like oh wait a second if i'm going to play with the trope then i'm going to kind of like you know i'm i'm going to like play with the fact that it is a trope and have it be like no it's not that like men are so obsessed with her because of her feminine wiles she's like cursed to have men be obsessed with her and then that's when it starts to become more like and she's immortal, and, uh, like, <laughs> you know, Cthulhu is horny for her also, for some reason. Right,
1: <laughs> right. Um, which, and also, I was interested because, like, this is also a concept that he has played with before in Daredevil of, the, like, the...
0: Going, going to jail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it ends <laughs> with him <by laughs> bars being like, what am I going to do now? But there is a line that also, I laughed at um, where she's, like, reflecting on, like... How men become obsessed with her. Or no, no, it's when the the like son of Johnny Lash, whose name I will eventually remember, Nicholas Lash, is like researching her and he's like, it always seems to end the same way for these men. Death, insanity, prison. That's <laughs> like it does always seem to end with prison, doesn't it, Ed?
1: <laughs> Have you ever seen that TikTok where the girls dancing to that sounds like, why are you so obsessed with me? I think it's Mariah Carey. But then, like, she's crying while she's doing it? No. <laughs> I have to send that to you, because I feel like that really <laughs> sums up this book in a nutshell. And also, I was going to say, it also, um blind characters is another thing that he mm. has touched on <laughs> in his work before with Daredevil. But I, of course, was talking about uh, the idea of, like, the woman who is cursed with attraction. Right. That sort of idea. The Lily Luca type. Yeah. And I don't know how, like how, where does that come from, I guess. And I guess it is sort of like an, an interest in the
0: femme fatale. Yeah. I think that that's a good like catch that Lily Luca is sort of his like proto flirtation with this idea, but because she is so much a secondary character in a book that's focused on other things it is sort of him being like the femme fatale, am I right? <laughs> um, whereas this is like a book length like meditation on the trope, deconstruction of the trope. <laughs> yeah, like the horror mashup element of it all is something that is like interesting, and I'm like, it makes sense. I guess it also sort of comes naturally. Yeah, like I was saying, once once you decide like, oh, she doesn't have control over like the way that men respond to her it does then become like oh of course a horror movie which i feel like is even something that we talked about on the daredevil episode about the idea of sort of like that this is an innately horrifying idea yeah or like that it sounds like the concept of a horror movie that there's a like a woman who like men are all attracted to her and she can't like make them stop fighting over her
1: right i i th- I almost want to say that there is a movie like that. I can't think of it right now. I just keep coming back to uh, the recent film Men, uh, which is not really about that. If you want to be charitable and say it is about anything, <laughs> uh, pretty bad movie, I will say. But yeah, it's it's certainly an interesting idea, and I get you know I get how that emerges out of the sort of idea of the femme fatale because it's a weird it's a weird concept because i don't think there is really an easy way to do it that is sort of like you know feminist to use that word like mm-hmm. i don't think there there's an easy because like it is a curse in that way i don't think that there's an easy way to have that character and like give her agency because it is sort of all about the idea that she lacks agency and like is sort of not you know, helpless by any means, but is going to sort of be hunted by men for
0: reasons beyond her control. Sure. She's something of a hunty. Definitely. You wish a hunty. Sorry. I meant to say wrong, wrong syllable emphasis there. Right. Um, <laughs> this does make me think of the essay that is at the start of my deluxe edition of this book, which is written by Megan Abbott, who I believe is an author. Um, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> where she like reflects at length on like the archetype of the femme fatale and talks about how the like. It's It all springs basically from, like, Eve as the first femme fatale, uh, sure. <laughs> like, fascinating take and the, like, themes of men in relation to the femme fatale or, like, the recurring thought of men in relation to the femme fatale being, I couldn't help myself, I was powerless, I had to do it, she made me do it. And then, like, goes on to kind of talk about agency for Josephine specifically, Joe. And, and kind of talks about how, yeah, that that it is hard to sort of, like, make it a feminist reading by having it become a curse, but, like, gives her agency by having it be something that she can, like, resist and seek to escape rather than something where it's, like, she just is responsible for everything men do and, and like, basically makes the argument of, like, the gray area vis-a-vis her agency is like kind of what makes the book interesting and she specifically amusingly points to um the wikipedia entry and flags a uh let's see here what is it what does she say specifically The Wikipedia entry for Fatal contains a sentence that perhaps sums up how groundbreaking the series is. It's so antithetical to our long-standing notions of the destructive femme fatale that the contributor stumbles over the question of Joe's agency uh, within his or her own grammar, and then quoting from Wikipedia. Fatal chronicles the life of Josephine, or Joe, who has a supernatural ability to hypnotize men into becoming intensely infatuated with her, whether she wants them to be or not. She has the ability to hypnotize them whether she wants to or not, which I think does give this like some nice, I guess, nuance and layers beyond like I feel like part of the problem we had with Incognito was that like the elevator pitch or like the the concept was like really all it had going on. I feel like Fatal could fall into a similar kind of trap if it was just like, it's the, you know, femme fatale, but like deconstructed if if there wasn't really like room for that kind of gray area. And so by having it be a thing where it's like she has agency in some situations, but also she's being denied agency in a lot of other ways. And in some ways she's like a victim of this curse, but in other ways the curse is something that empowers her. I think it just puts like a lot more meat on the bones in some ways. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I can
1: really get behind the idea that it empowers her. Like, I think, like, it certainly is an interesting, like, idea, and it's sort of, like, it invites a sort of, like, a feminist reading or a feminist sort of, like, interrogation of the concept. But I don't think that it's sort of possible to make her the character to have that level of agency or, like, any sort of power ultimately because like her only sort of recourse or her power is always like at least in the ones we've read is just like i can find a man and he will like do most of the actual work (laughs) and i will like convalesce in my
0: house (laughs) (laughs) yeah so it's
1: hard to sort of say that you know she is making her own destiny or anything and then like i i think there it does you know it creates a lot of dimension to the character. Obviously, this is a character who, like, you know, enjoys having (laughs) love affairs with multiple people, and the book is not necessarily, like, you know, uh, that's bad, that's wrong. (laughs) That's bad, that's bad, that's really, really bad. (laughs) (laughs) And it creates an interesting sort of complexity to it with the idea of, like, you know, she has this control, and, you know, that... I guess the implication of the line in the Wikipedia article is like there are situations where she wants this to happen Mm -hmm. and is like, you know, happy, I guess, that she is like able to do this. But then also there's the question of like, you know,
0: do they love me or do they love my crazy powers? (laughs) I mean, it is funny that in these issues, at least, they don't really explore that question to a great extent in fact i would say the kind of running implication is that like they love her quasi powers so that like when it is touched on at all she's like it's it's mostly either joe being like rut row like the the spell is wearing off basically or like the the interior horror of the men being like i don't love this person she's doing something to me but, like, I think to return to sort of the question of agency, like, I do think that you're right that it does kind of make it difficult to give it a totally feminist reading when her power is, like, the power to get men to do stuff for her. But I also right. think that it's sort of, like, that's also kind of where the lovecraft of it all comes into it because it's, like, no, like, is is she making her own destiny and it's sort of like no one is making their own destiny. They're ants like, you know, they're 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 specks of dust in the eyes of like these eldritch gods. And if anything, she is like the one person who does sort of have the chance to make her own destiny because of the powers that she has kind of in connection to those those um elder gods and the whatever it is like the place that they have for her in their kind of like design for the world that makes them chase after her and and want her to for for something <laughs> I think that (laughs) is one, one point that the book has not been very clear about to this point. (laughs) Right. So you have not read this? I have read, I, I read pretty much everything that we covered, um, today or that we are covering today and I've read the next probably like four or five issues, but then everything thereafter is kind of, uh, around the time when I stopped like collecting monthly books, um, so I have had them waiting again, <laughs> waiting, had them, uh, had them on ice, had them dead stock waiting for a good opportunity to, uh, blow the dust off of these here dust covers. Although these books don't have dust covers and, uh, and sink my teeth in. So I don't, that I can recall, know what the, her actual kind of what purpose is, is beyond the implications of having a title like the consort. Right. Um, and also, you know,
1: Dusting off a book and sinking your teeth into something are kind of the two moves that the demons have. In this book.
0: Uh, that's uh, true. Also, T-
1: deny it. Also, a uh, second follow-up joke for the things you just <laughs> said. Uh, everything thereafter sounds like an
0: indie drama. <laughs> that's true. All right, this seems like a good time for me to click play on crying girl TikTok dash. Why are you so obsessed with me? Yes. Okay. (laughs) As described. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's good, though,
1: right? Yeah, sure. Okay. So, the plot, as we have sort of alluded to here, and as you probably would have been able to figure out if you haven't already, you know, popped up in the Wikipedia article or, crazier still, read these issues, (laughs) um, which I would recommend. The basic idea is. There's this woman named Joe Josephine, uh, who has sort of not been born with like we don't we don't have the full backstory really do we like no it seems like she first sort of came into being like around the turn of the century maybe we don't I don't know really, if they say that or if that's just a vibe I get yeah
0: we don't really even know so she talks I I mean we'll get into this a bit more maybe next time about her origins specifically but. I don't think we even know if she is, if she knows how old she actually is. Right.
1: So maybe I'm just sort of, I was, my mind was sort of filling in the gaps there. Mm -hmm. Um, But we know her life dates back at least like to the early 20th century. I think it's fair to say. yes, And then also like uh, up to the present day. And she is this woman who has this, power or curse depending on how you look at it i guess um that men are like drawn to her that they will do her bidding that they are in love with her that they like feel this overwhelming need to protect her and so she you know she (laughs) there are benefits and drawbacks to this naturally she (laughs) Mm -hmm. sort of has to like prevent herself from there are times when she sort of does her best not to make any contact with men so that she can avoid sort of creating these situations. Uh, But by and large, she just sort of goes through life trying to survive, trying to figure out why she has these abilities and why she is immortal also. So we jump around in time a little bit. The first
0: arc takes place in, like, what, the The 50s, 50s, baby? It is, yeah, it is very much, um, like... A noir story from the right. perspective of the femme fatale, this this first one. Sure, definitely. Like sort of
1: opposite of star-crossed lovers,
0: <laughs> poop-crossed lovers.
1: <laughs> um, so it's her. She has this guy, this man friend named Walter, who is a cop, and he's a crooked cop. Um, And then there's this guy who is an author who also in the present day is like the grandfather of one of these present day characters. I'm not going to do well with
0: anyone's name, I fear. Um, But essentially, sorry, I just want to interject for a minute while we're talking about the fact that it's set in the 50s to briefly note that at one point, uh, a mobster does say the line of dialogue. Get him, boys. Proceed. Perfect.
1: Oh, there's one thing that I actually have to show you which I might have showed you before <laughs> but I don't want to give it away at any rate so they're sort of caught up uh, and Hank Rains is the uh, the author but he's also a reporter That's So he's the same a, character he, right? He, yeah
0: he starts off as a journalist and then after his like adventures with his misadventures I guess you should really say so with true. Joe he becomes a novelist
1: I see okay um, and so they sort of the three of them all sort of get caught up in this intricate sort of plot that's like a little bit organized crime, a little bit like a cult,
0: cult, murder type situation.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: He like Walter or Walt um, and Joe have like a history of some kind that originates in World War Two that is like vaguely alluded to that Joe and this might be true, but Joe understands that to be kind of like the origins of her powers is is some kind of ritual that she and Walt were both involved in during World War II. Right, because Walt is like also a magician of some description. Walt well again, I think that Walt knows some magic because of like his involvement in certain events in World War II. That he, like, he's more of, like, a a magician in the, like, John Constantine mold where it's, like, he's not, like, the world's most powerful magician or something. He just, like, knows some spells that he picked up, like, by proximity. Right. He's learned a few tricks. Yeah. And so, basically,
1: they become mired in this plot, you know, and then we, we sort of come to realize that. The cultists are after Joe because she shares some kind of connection with, like, these eldritch gods which they worship. And it basically concludes with, like, Hank gets kidnapped and taken to this sort of, like, underground lair. And then Walt and Joe go to rescue him. Walt has this, like, stone dagger which he stole from a ritual previously Mm -hmm. and like has the power to hurt these demons. Like the the cultists are also like, some of them are like eldritch demons of some description. They can like
0: transform. So there's like the one Mr. Bishop um, is like a full fledged demon. And then there are some guys who are routinely referred to as the dogs who are kind of like, more sort of like brainless um kind of like XCOM thin men yeah that is really what i was thinking of as well they're they're sort of like yeah they're they're like beasts in human skin who you know don't really have independent thought separate from mr bishop they're just used to like be muscle and are often
1: depicted as like CIA spooks kind yeah, of like very much like G men gray suits hats sunglasses that kind of thing. Yeah. Very <laughs> good. You just sent me get him boys. <laughs> um and so it basically concludes with Walt like sacrifices himself to like go on this killing spree, kill a bunch of demons. He meets up with Mr. Bishop or the Bishop who is like the the head of this whole operation. And I guess the idea that we get here is that the bishop is sort of this, like, link between... It's like middle management. Right. And I bet I know. This is my theory that I'm going to present, and we'll revisit this next episode. I think that the idea is that, like, the bishop and the consort, i.e. Joe, are sort of, like, meant to be together and, like, have a child, I bet. Because there's always a demon baby.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, he already rebirthed himself through a baby.
1: It's true. No, no spoilers nope. <laughs> for what I'm about to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so this this final encounter with the bishop, Walt like takes out its eyes, um, and then at the end of the book, uh, or sort of this arc, uh, is it Hank's Hank's wife, right? Yes. So Hank's wife and child are, like, kidnapped. His wife is killed in a sacrifice. And then his child, who is a baby, is used <laughs> in this. <laughs> it's an important distinction. Yes, his baby child. Yeah. they he The baby is used in a blood ritual to, like, reincarnate the bishop back into a human form. But the bishop is still blind. And so, like, we've sort of mm-hmm. seen that. It's carrying over the damage that Walt did previously, even though he was unable to kill the bishop
0: entirely. Yes. And of course, he will now be known as Hansel going forward. <laughs> He's so hot right now. Um, <laughs> but also in the
1: present, Hank reigns's grandson, um, Hank Reigns has just died. No, his godson. Son. Is that right? Yeah, he's he's Johnny Lashes. Hard time keeping track of this. Right, 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 right. So Hank Reigns's godson is sort of like investigating this situation um, because Hank Reigns has just died. He encounters Josephine and like gets in a car crash basically immediately after meeting her. Oh well, um, there's a great she, North by Northwest reference, of course. I assume more or less. Yeah, not not really, but kind of. Anyways, there's this book which is important.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so this part I had a bit of a hard time tracking this. This I the so the book I don't know if it's really been made clear why exactly the book is important. It's the it's an unpublished manuscript by Hank, his very first novel, which seems to have some kind of like indications of. Some, it, it says something about Josephine's true nature, but what that is is never really kind of ex, explicated, and it's highly sought after because he was such a successful author, and it's like a lost masterpiece. But it's also sought after by the
1: demons. Yeah, the
0: demons also want it for and some reason Joe. that we don't really know. Yeah, but like Joe wanted it, but then after the car accident, she's like, here you go, Nicholas. Like you hang on to that, I guess. I guess so, yeah. And he hangs on to it mostly because he's like, "There's this is something about Josephine, and I don't really get it." But like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hang on to that puppy,
1: right? And so he sort of encounters her, and then he is basically going throughout investigating. um, And at at the point that we are at, basically, like he hasn't found out much. We there's like a safety deposit box that contains something. Which like he goes to only to find that Josephine has already come and cleared it out by like influencing this private investigator that was who was originally coming to uh, what's his name Nicholas Lash uh, to try and sort of like collect some money from. Mm-hmm. This is all unnecessarily confusing. <laughs> um, anyways, the second arc is set in the sixties or the seventies. Yeah, right. And the it late stars 70s. T. <laughs> it kind of stars T. Glawless. It is
0: kind <laughs> of once upon a time in Hollywood. It is also kind of once upon a time in Hollywood. Although, you know, predating it by such a wide margin that I'm like, he's a visionary. Sure, um, absolutely. I and, kind and I of need to obviously, be clear, the guy has nothing in common with T. Glawless other than that he's drawn exactly like T. Glawless. <laughs> yes. Um.
1: It's the story of Miles, this B-movie actor who is sort of like a failed actor, um, and this time the cultists are like, you know, they're obviously
0: clear analogs to the Manson family mm-hmm. and, and also kind I of like thought, Scientology. because yeah, they talk so much about the method, which I'm like, that's very like Dianetics to me.
1: Right. It's like a weird church, like a hippie church, basically. Yeah. And he gets embroiled in this murder plot with his friend Susie and basically is being hunted. And then also they have a a film that they steal. like
0: So I guess instead of a book, it's a film this time. It's like, it's a snuff film. And I think the implication is that it shows Josephine being killed and then coming back to life slash it's like video of the ritual from world war two possibly. But right. it's, it's mostly being like he, he knows a film producer who wants it. Cause he's like, ah, sweet, a snuff film for my private right. collection. Right. He's a freakazoid.
1: Yeah. Um, And so they like ostensibly by chance stumble across uh, Josephine's house where she has like become a recluse in order to avoid, you know, any further damage that her, her powers will wreak. Mm -hmm. Uh, So they hole up there and then Miles like becomes her lover and starts sort of investigating this whole situation for her. And then that culminates with. Uh, And there's also another character who really isn't that important, Um, (laughs) who is, like, his old girlfriend. Uh, And then it ultimately culminates with this, like, attack on the Method Church where, like, they have um, (laughs) AK-47s between Miles and his friend Rat, (laughs) while... Hansel, who is the leader of the Method Church, who is the bishop, reincarnated as, like, a clear Charles Manson type. Mm -hmm. uh, If Jago was Jesus, please. Whatever that means. (laughs) Um, (laughs) That's how he's described by Miles. uh, So, uh, basically the same things happen. Like, they sort of raid her house. They are coming to get her. Miles comes and saves her, but is killed in the process. And then sort of, you know, we... Continue on from there, more or less. Yeah. Uh, and then and then the, the big ending, the big cliffhanger is that he... uh Niclash. Niclash. Sure. <laughs> he, at some point, gets the manuscript stolen, and then he eventually finds or doesn't find it again, but he goes, he fa- happens upon the woman who stole it from him, who is also a demon, question mark? No, I think she just is like a demon worshiper. I see. Um. So she is found dead, and the manuscript is gone, and then the police come upon him. He is obviously... What was that? I shot leaned back and did shot in the head. Sure. He goes to jail for her murder, and then the big reveal is, at the end, he is given this published copy of The Losing Side of Eternity, this lost manuscript which has now been published, and causes him to scream.
0: He's like, He is like that, yeah. Uh, And then there's one other issue. (laughs) (laughs) The most important issue, because it establishes, of course, that Fatal is, in fact, in the Criminatic Oliverse. Criminatic Oliverse. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Remember how uh, I said we'd be seeing old Alfred Ravenscroft, the creator of Zangar again? Oh, sure. (laughs) (laughs) Josephine pays a visit to not H.P. Lovecraft, but of course, Alfred Ravenscroft, who in Criminal is the credited creator of Savage Sword of Zangar and several other similar uh, pulp masterpieces but in this is a sought after as the author of a short story that describes nightmares that josephine has had and so she goes to hear about how he was part of a cult as a kid basically and they turned his mom into like a squid ghost and he knew something about her but she'll never know what it was because after shortly after this encounter he hangs himself right and he has sort of, like, he,
1: like, had contact with the other side and sort of had these, like, visions that haunted him. And that's what the story was about.
0: Yeah. He wrote some totally freaky deaky books.
1: Totally. Um, yeah, I mean, like, <laughs> it's it's weird because, like, I did enjoy these as I was reading them. But then it's, like, when I'm asked to, like, <laughs> talk about anything that happens in them, basically, I'm like, uh mostly people are kind of like
0: looking around. (laughs) They're always like looking for something. They are. uh, And, and are we all looking for something if you think about it? Mm. Yeah. I do think that one of the strengths of the series is the way in which it like is very withholding in some ways in, in a way that like sustains I hesitate to say like the mystery of it because I feel like again similar to some of the other books we've talked about there is a lot of kind of like you get it um, in, the, in some of the storytelling here so I don't necessarily want to say it's like the mystery of it because I think that there is a lot of heavy implications that we are expected to kind of be able to piece together in broad strokes what is going on but I do think that because he's very withholding it, it lends that sense of like dread and terror to the book kind of like overall in a, in a way that makes it feel very sort of like unsettling.
1: Right. There's a lot of like, and this is also like a classic noir thing as well. Mm -hmm. The sort of like the person, like either the person who sort of finds anything out is the person who gets killed or you know, if someone gets close to the truth or gets a clue, then they also like get a
0: visit mm-hmm. from the demons and like stop snooping around and usually right. they have to like hit them with a brick in the head. And the snoopers always feel like somebody's watching them. Sure. Is that a reference it's to somebody's watching me? Yeah. Right. <laughs> Ever heard of it? Rockwell. <laughs> yeah. And he does. Of I know Rockwell. Yeah. I do think that one of like, in the shower. Yeah. <laughs> I'm afraid to wash my hair. The IRS. <laughs> I do think that it's kind of, like it's an interesting, like kind of tonal mismatch. Not maybe mismatch is the wrong Mishmash. word. The horror is like so horrifying when you get the like full on like here's what they're doing. It is very like like gruesome and cosmic and like big scale and like your brain, like it breaks your brain how freaking horrifying this stuff is. But I also feel like a lot of the first sort of like the first story, especially is more so supposed to feel like uh, somebody's watching me, but more to the point that the like horror of the universe is kind of like just in your peripheral vision and like most people don't notice it but then every so often there's people like Walt who do notice it but then when they like turn to look their head like turn turn their heads to look there's nothing actually there and it it has a bit more of like a sort of paranoid feel to it Mm -hmm. which like I think that they're both done very effectively and I don't like, I don't know. I don't really have a complaint per se. I just think it's kind of interesting that like you do cultivate a lot of that sort of like tension or suspense of like, there's another world lingering just at the edge of vision. And it's super, I guess that that is the thing of it is that it's like, you can tell that it's super messed up, but you can never like quite look at it directly. And then when you finally are able to like see it full on, it like ruins you forever.
1: Right. Yeah. And I mean, like it's also doing a genre mishmash as well. Yeah. Where it's sort of like it, it is this horror comic ultimately, but it has these trappings of various, you know, the trappings of the time period, um, a lot of, you know, sort of noir-ish trappings. Like it usually, it, both of the arcs sort of center around this sort of central mystery that's being investigated by a very like, you know, neither of them are private eyes, but like sort of private eye types, like sort of stoic men. And so it creates this really interesting sort of mishmash, as as uh, you may have been meaning to say, <laughs> uh, because, you know, you talked about the North by Northwest illusion early on. And like I that's at the beginning, I was like, oh, this is like his or their sort of take on a Hitchcockian kind of like
0: Thriller, mm-hmm. And like, I do also think that there's elements of that too, because in the mm-hmm. second arc, I was like, uh, I, I, there was something about her whole, like, I'm such a recluse that I was like, this is kind of like Mrs. Batesy to me in like a weird sort of way. Not in a way that I could necessarily, like, connect the threads, but that there is just sort of something about how she talks about being, like, this kind of creepy old woman who's, like, shut away in her house and people only see her, like, peering through the window, I guess, is what it what it is. The rear window, if you will. Sure. And the
1: one that it made me think of was also Rebecca, which I haven't seen, but sort of is, like, like a gothic romance. Mm-hmm. Where it's sort of like, and you know, there are other movies like this, especially in like the 30s and the 40s, that are like sort of these gothic romances where it's either like, I've got a terrible secret, or like our marriage has like some terrible like element to it which haunts me. Sort of the idea of the haunted lady, (laughs) I feel Mm -hmm. like, is a very sort of prevalent idea throughout that. And you know, while she is sort of the stereotypical femme fatale, she is also that kind of character as well this woman who has been cursed in her love life, especially, Mm -hmm. um, and is sort of like in being put in an impossible situation because of
0: her, her past kind of. Yeah. It does also feel relevant for the second arc, which is kind of like, um, I mean, we'll talk uh, lots about like old Hollywood when we get to the fade out, but do you have you've read already, Question Mark, that Brubaker's uncle is John Paxton? No. The screenwriter. <laughs> I'm so the Brubaker's uncle, you're thinking, of course, of John Pax's son. Brubaker's uncle, John Paxton, is notable as the screenwriter behind such films as Murder My Sweet, Cornered, and Crossfire, uh, for which he earned an Oscar nomination. Um, and like helped write the screenplay for the wild one yeah was it was like a prominent screenwriter of the 40s especially and the 50s as well and writer of like noir films oh hey I heard you were the wild one (sighs) (laughs) acknowledged Um, so he does have that sort of like Uh, You know, it's, it doesn't quite connect directly to like the seventies setting, which I think he chose because like the post Manson stuff is so much kind of like the vibe that he's looking for. And, and I guess kind of the, like the, like soiled vision of the sixties, if that makes sense. It's like, Mm -hmm. you know, the, the bloom has come off the rose and now instead of being like colorful and psychedelic, all of the hippie stuff seems like grungy and like scary and that's, like, really kind of the tone he needs. But I do think that, like, he he has a sort of, like, fascination with Hollywood and old Hollywood is, like, in particular because of this kind of, like, family connection. And I do think that that's also kind of some of the source of his interest in, like, the very classic 40s and 50s noir stuff is to be like, I have this, like, family connection to it. And like, I'm not the first writer in the family to have an interest in this sort of genre.
1: Right. And it's interesting that (laughs) I'm sorry to do this, but it's interesting that you said the post Manson era because it is similar to the post man always rings twice, which (laughs) is uh, I don't know if you're familiar with, but it's like a novel novel. And also a movie, which I believe is about the, like, you know, it's very much the idea of the femme fatale who talks her lover into murdering her husband. What?
0: <sighs> I started to type the postman always rings twice and it suggested the protocols of the elders of Zion. <laughs> mm. And I was like, no. Shout out Kyrie Irving. <laughs> uh, Cut <come> mm. <laughs> that. <laughs> no, that's all going out. Certainly. Um, So, so yeah. And it's also like the, this one does feel like the influences are broader, I guess, than something like criminal. I guess, again, it is like the mix of genres that probably contributes to that. Um, But if you vamp for a bit, I will find the like list of stuff that he cites as, uh, as inspirations. Right, and because I didn't see the essays,
1: I was also looking at like the list of things that they wrote essays about, mm-hmm. and there's also a pretty broad range of uh, of the type of thing uh, that they're writing about in terms of genre and everything like that. And I think that's part of why I found it so interesting because you know every now and again you'll see iconography or you'll see a plot point or you know the general sort of patina that the settings create. Uh, give off the, a certain vibe of certain uh, me- like other forms of media and other you know entries in this sort of canon, but it never like sticks. Like you're, mm-hmm. it's like oh, this is like a an HP Lovecraft thing, but it's like you're never like he's doing an HP Lovecraft thing. <laughs> it's just like that's one element of it that he's pulling from. Yeah,
0: I do feel like, it, and it maybe is like yeah it it works better i will say full full stop than incognito but they both do kind of give the sense not of like this is a guy whose knowledge of this genre is like encyclopedic and his love for this genre like knows no depths. It has more of a feel of a like, this guy is like versed enough in the world of genre to like recognize some of the like iconic images and like key tropes. and he really enjoys like kind of what those evoke. And so he's able to use them to like inject flavor and texture to his stories really effectively which is different from something like criminal where it's like this guy loves crime stories.
1: Yeah. And I like there's probably may well, I don't even know like I don't think that someone who is just like you certainly have to have a
0: healthy love of noir to make this book oh, obviously. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm talking more so about the horror stuff where like I'm like yeah. do I think that Brew Baker has read all of H.P. Lovecraft's stories like maybe but if he said no i wouldn't be like oh that's crazy it seems like you are like you really love lovecraft i'm more so like it seems like you are like well versed in the like key you know or or like it seems like you know what the impact of lovecraft on horror is and like the idea of like invoking some of that imagery and some of those tropes right and that's kind of what i was saying is that like an
1: expert someone who is just an expert in sort of one or the other, because I I guess the two major poles are sort of the noir or crime fiction and then the horror fiction. Um, Someone who is only versed in one or the other couldn't really make this book, I feel like. And Mm -hmm. so like having the ability to draw from both and from other things and having the breadth versus criminal, which I feel like has the depth Mm -hmm. where he is like, directly lifting like scenes and characters and all that stuff from other movies and things like that Mm -hmm. um which is also cool but i feel like this like it feels more original because he is not like he he doesn't know as much maybe or he is like pulling from a broader
0: breadth of sources Mm -hmm. so here is i have now found in response to the question, what are your some of your favorite horror movies, books, and comics? What inspires your work on Fatal, and what would you suggest to readers? Um, and he says, my favorites, some of them influential on Fatal in no specific order. Joe Hill books and his Lock and Key comics, Rosemary's Baby, The Omen, Lovecraft's stories, and the video games and board games spawned by them, EC horror comics, especially the ones by Johnny Craig, early Creepy and Eerie magazines, Richard Corbin's horror work with Bruce Jones and Jan Sternad, Wuthering Heights, Alan Moore's Swamp Thing Run, From Hell, Ken Russell's The Devils, The Hammer film The Devil Rides Out, Hellboy, The Keep, Wicker Man, Recent Ones That Scared Me Were The Last Exorcism and Kill List. I'm actually kind of a horror wuss, as you can see. I prefer the kind that leaves most of it to your imagination." And so, I do think that that's sort of like track where like it's like there that is a lot of like horror comics specifically which is kind of like a very specific genre it is like a few movies that are not exactly like super deep cuts other than like the hammer f- like kind of very specific reference um like lovecraft invoked but also sort of like you know the the growing kind of like lovecraft mythos that has long since kind of outgrown what was like, is solely encapsulated by the actual Lovecraft stories.
1: Yeah, I mean, I feel like this was particularly an era also, like, in the early 2010s, where Lovecraftian was sort of a buzzy thing and a thing that was making its way into a lot of different forms of fiction. And like it says, like, cute Cthulhu era. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Is that so, a thing? Yeah.
1: Not directly, but I, I'm, you know, I feel like I'm invoking an idea like there definitely are sort of like chibi cthulhu yeah, drawings definitely. and merchandise for sure there's and of course like the, the idea of like this is so like it's almost like this is so scary that it's funny to like talk
0: about how scary it is basically mm-hmm. i mean certainly just like the idea of tentacles <laughs> right <laughs> it instantly makes that kind of connection yeah, I mean, sure. Around this time, we will soon meet in uh, Jeff Lemire's Black Hammer series, the beloved character Cthulhu-ise. um Sure. She's the daughter of Cthulhu. That's, of course, cthulhu lou Lou <laughs> being a mechanic mm-hmm. who got like superpowers that turned him into Cthulhu. So there's that. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh what else to say i i feel that the two stories like i think you kind of like highlighted this in your summary but the like broad strokes of the stories have a lot of similarities which i guess is also kind of like part of the point of it is like the same thing always happens to her that's like kind of part of the horror for her in some ways but i do feel like they are still very different like they don't they don't feel the same at all
1: no definitely not and i think like that's a big part of that is that the settings feel very distinct and also you know the settings are kind of doing a lot of lifting without actually having to do a lot of textual lifting Mm -hmm. um like you know especially now that once upon a time in hollywood has come out and sort of very effectively created this specific like vibe or sheen or whatever of that sort of era mm-hmm. that as soon as you sort of see the the aesthetic trappings and you see who this character is in like you know a bit of like a down and out actor not exactly the same as uh what's his name Rick yeah Rick Dalton, Rick Dalton. Yeah not the exact same as that character obviously but similar sort of struggling actor who (laughs) has his has his irons in a lot of fires i don't know if that's maybe mixing my metaphors there but yeah like you know it and understand it and feel it without necessarily the text of the book having to do anything in particular like i don't think that it feels a certain way because they say like we're going to the Hollywood Hills to
0: do something
1: <laughs> like, I think it's sort of a more, more of an aesthetic thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It is. Um, it is interesting in that way where like, I think that, yeah, without sort of a clearer or, or a more recent kind of like re embodiment of like that era of Hollywood in something like once upon a time in Hollywood, it would lose a bit of the like. I don't. I don't know how readily I would have been like. Oh yeah, duh. Like Manson family stuff. I don't know how quickly I would have like gone to that um, previously until they like specifically are like like Manson family stuff. So it is. It is helpful that that kind of like era has been more so in the zeitgeist for sure. What. Uh... Is San Francisco like a big noir town? (laughs) Do we know? Do do we know this? I feel like like they're bullet, right? (laughs) Which, but which is not a
1: noir. No, not per se. I do feel like you know. It's just it is a very distinctive setting. Isn't the Maltese Falcon a noir movie? It is. Yep. I mean, sorry, a San Francisco
0: movie. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good. I mean, if it is, then that kind of implies that all of the Sam Spade stuff is San Francisco stuff. And indeed, San Francisco is the setting of the Maltese Falcon. Bozanga. Just investigating here yeah okay yeah, yeah. I mean, so all the sam spade stuff is in san francisco that uh, that does help clarify things for me some right
1: and you know i think sort of the the general like california but it's also kind of like foggy as well mm-hmm. sort of like like cre- i
0: like i definitely think of la as like a noir city possibly sure, because definitely. of la noir um but yeah, like San Francisco, I feel like I can picture it really clearly. Like, isn't is on the waterfront also? San Francisco. It's a good question,
1: um, but yeah, like I do feel like it's sort of it provides a, a counterpoint to. Uh, no, it's a New York movie. Hmm. Um, it provides this counterpoint to Los Angeles, which is like I think the sort of irony, if you will, of Los Angeles being the noir city is like. It's so sunny, but then it's like, you know, the there's shade, you know? <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> <coughs> Excuse me. Um, yeah, I, I get like I didn't really realize the extent to which Brew Baker is like a West Coast guy, where I was like reading a bit of an interview and he was talking about how like so of course he grew up in Guantanamo Bay <laughs> can forget (laughs) but like had lived in san francisco in his kind of like young adulthood or like younger adulthood had this relationship end and went to seattle which is the setting of like the last arc of Fatal. and then now kind of like splits his time between burbank and seattle so it really has been like his whole life has been like northern california pacific northwest like west coast west west coast living for sure and which is like kind of funny because i don't really like he's he has set a lot of his stories on the west coast but like these books don't really give me a west coast vibe and i wonder if it is just that like being more so an east coaster That like when I think like, oh, yeah, like the dirty city crime, baby. I'm like, well, yeah, New York and Chicago. Like those are those are like the crime cities. If it's more of a like if I was from B.C., I would be like, yes, of course, like Los Angeles and San Francisco, the crime cities. Sure. I mean, like, you know, I think
1: also just a big city is naturally going to be have, you know, like we sort of talked about with the settings, like to have a sort of natural aesthetic and then also have an aesthetic as perpetuated by media that it's sort of, you know, I think you could almost say it's a character in the story in
0: some ways. Mm. What do you think about that? I just thought of that. Yeah. Now, like, you know, I wouldn't have said it, but I now that you think about it or you say it rather, I am kind of like, I guess New York is the seventh friend guess i guess new york is kind of the other uh sex in the city haver (laughs) (laughs) the other sexer (laughs) um but like i yeah it's it's just it's very interesting to me i feel like a lot of times like for Vaughn, for example who set so many of his books in la he like really went to some of the kind of like iconic la locations now maybe that's because he's a transplant and it's like uh, well, I'm writing in Al- about L.A. now, so they're going to have the headquarters at like the La Brea Tar Pits or like the observatory right. or whatever. And like he's cutting through history class now. He's cutting through history class now. Um, or like, you know, they're going to go hang out at the Hollywood sign. Although I guess Brew is also a transplant. But like, um, yeah, I don- I'm just surprised that like as I read through it. I'm never like, oh yeah, this is like very West Coast. I, I guess it's because it is like a period piece, and so everyone looks like they're wearing these like very heavy wool suits. That I'm like, sure. classic New York behavior to wear <laughs> to wear a suit. <laughs> sure, uh, but you know,
1: like this is that's I feel like that's sort of what I mean when I talk about like it having this certain vibe to it without having to be specific about its geography or anything like that Mm -hmm. like i do think that it pretty successfully evokes like california and that sort of energy without
0: having to like you said go to the hollywood sign Mm -hmm. go to the observatory etc yeah and i guess part of it also is that sean phillips is like uk born raised lives there to this day So he might not also have that same impulse that an American artist would have to be like, well, I got to show like the Hollywood Hills. I got to show, you know, the freaking reservoir. Do they have a big reservoir or something? I think so. Got to show the reservoir. L.A. River. Got to. Yeah. Yeah. I got to drive my car in the L.A. River. (laughs) Sure. Or or like, oh, San Francisco, Golden Gate Bridge. Like, we got to show the bridge. We got to show, you know, the the hills. It, does, I, I, it might just be that he, like, doesn't have that same kind of impulse or instinct that an American artist might. And I also might just be, like, um, you know, showing showing a bit of my ignorance of, like, the whole kind of West Coast presence in, like, noir and crime stuff, especially because, again, I do think of L.A. as kind of one of the signature cities in that way. But at like probably third on the list after New York and Chicago, but San Francisco is one that like really wouldn't ever have occurred to me. But then I'm like, well, it is like the Sam Spade city, so obviously, you know, that's a pretty big like footprint in the genre. Yeah, absolutely. Just a little West Coast talk for you. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Out to our coastal elites. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: Art good yeah definitely good um, I keep thinking about the sort of idea that I heard brought up for uh, last not last thing uh, since uh, all my heroes are junkies and also I think in another criminal issue that, that he is sort of evoking romance comics because mm-hmm. that's I feel like what I see a lot in the depiction of Josephine especially like mm-hmm Maybe it is just that she, you know, has so much, like, expression to her and so much dimensionality in terms of her emotion. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do feel, and obviously, you know, she is meant to look very typically... She's supposed to be looking like a stock character in some ways. Yeah. That sort of creates that that impression.
0: Yeah. And, I mean, that is, like, really... That, I feel like, is more so communicated by the covers in which she very much is presented as, like, a poster girl, like, femme fatale. Like, exactly what yeah, you would but, see on a movie poster.
1: Yeah, but more in, in, a, in a noir way. Yes,
0: definitely. But, but, like, I think that that is really, like, you know not not to say that like oh she doesn't evoke that in the pages of the comic itself she certainly does but the the covers are so noiry you know yeah i mean literally like color wise i feel like yeah, they're yeah. often like primarily black and white with like one splash of color in them usually right yeah yep <laughs> i <laughs> i noticed In one of the early criminals and now can't stop noticing it, that every time he draws someone firing a gun or being hit with gunfire, he does this like (laughs) like bang word balloon effect basically around the gun being fired. That is like very jaggedy in a way that is like it, it to me, it reminds me most of Hellboy, which is like his art does not look like Hellboy (laughs) really at all to me. Like I wouldn't say like, Oh, Mignola, although maybe a little, well, I'm going to, I'm going to confuse myself here because also like this series is colored by Dave Stewart, who colors Hellboy. So like Mm. that element of it, you know, he, he does bring a lot of that sensibility in terms of kind of the overall aesthetic and like the fact that like the monsters yeah see now that I say it as I look at it I'm like not not like Hellboy era Mignola necessarily but like early Mignola when he was sort of a more stylized version of the house style I see it more than I would have thought so maybe I'm just wrong but (laughs) (laughs) it is it is a funny kind of like because I think most of the time he is quite a like realist, basically. Right. And so to have the this like I, I'm going to send you one that I've just kind of like looked around and found to have these like very kind of funny stylized gun bangs is is like an interesting tick, I guess, or or like habit of his that I have noticed. Yeah, <laughs> I just sent you the same panel. Oh. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I, I never would have noticed that, but I you know my only exposure to Hellboy is when Hellboy yells, he's got a gun and the monkey has a gun. But I do feel <laughs> like
0: <laughs> I know it from that because the monkey has a gun. <laughs> and he's firing it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I find that, like, now we are cutting through history class now, jumping through time, tripping through time, you might even say. So this is, uh, well... No, this is I guess the next thing that he does after Bad Influences, right? Uh if you say so. Or Last No, he does Last of the Innocent and then he does Fatal because Last of the Innocent is where they announce Fatal as a project, but it this looks nothing like Incognito. I feel like it also doesn't really look like Criminal. I think it looks
1: something like Criminal. I think he he is sort of maybe going for a more like almost a less stylized style in some ways and maybe a more like realist but still comic booky style mm-hmm. um i one thing i also noticed is like just i feel like his shot selection is very varied in these comics like it, virtually every panel you know in the same way that was it is it Wally Wood that had the like here are the panels Oh, yeah, yeah. The, the, the types like, of uh, the
0: perspectives. Yeah, the, like, 21 panels that always work.
1: Yeah. Like, he's. it's almost at times feels like that, where it's like you're cycling through so many different perspectives, so many different shots. And right. I, I don't mean that in a bad way, but just that, like... Highly dynamic. It, yeah, he's doing a lot of different things. And, like, you know, it's clear that, you know, he's not copy and pasting the same panel every
0: time and, you know putting a different word balloon on top by any means. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I agree. Yeah, I don't know if I'm just like reading it with a bit more intentionality as I'm kind of like flicking through here, but not to invoke Frank Kafka PI. <laughs> but I do also feel like this book, maybe, I don't know, maybe I would contradict myself if I went back and like looked more carefully through Incognito or some of Criminal, but I do feel like this book really adheres to like the three tiers of panels per page. And then evokes the kind of like each tier is like a strip in a way Mm that, mm, I don't know. Again, maybe, maybe I would have, if I had been like paying more kind of attention to that in some of the other stuff that we've read recently, I would feel that it was more strongly present there as well. But it does. Yeah, I don't know. It gives it does give me a bit of that kind of like newspaper strip vibe as well, at least the like the 50s story. I haven't really looked at the 70s one as closely in the same way.
1: Yeah, I I kind of know what you mean. Like I I think we've talked about before, like I think you're a lot more likely to see probably because you're usually reading physical, um, you're more likely to see a page layout as like a full page than I am. Mm hmm. But that's cool <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, the, so the owl thing <laughs> let's get into the, the mythos of the world in a brief a uh, complete change of directions do you have any insight into the like hope the owl thing at all
1: uh, I would need to probably to look at the issue again with the ribbon that ties up the world or whatever Yeah, it's, it's mentioned a few times Right, this sort of myth of the owl ties the Earth to the moon or something. Yeah, and that's what makes the world so cool. Uh, The short answer is no, I don't really have any insight into it. You know, I I don't know that that's meant to be, like, you know, laying groundwork for anything in particular. I think that's just sort of maybe symbolic of the cult and their sort of mythology than it is like there's going to be an owl in issue 22 who mm-hmm. <laughs> will reveal himself
0: <laughs> mm. uh, I did read an interview with him where he talked about how he's obsessed with having the story within a story and offered zero insight about like and it always like carries a lot of meaning like his explanation for like the sort of Zangar was like I was thinking about how funny it would be for Teague to be reading Conan in jail. <laughs> um, so I think that the like the owl has more to it than that. But I do think that also sometimes we go searching for like narrative in places where he just is like, it would be fun to like have this story be a thing. Right. It's not really trying to do like Watchmen, for example, I feel like is like the trademark
1: example of the. Yeah. Story within the story, yeah, certainly, yeah. Um, and that, yeah, I feel like that sort of ties into the idea of like, it's sometimes, and he in particular is like sometimes maybe more interested in presenting an aesthetic than he is in establishing sort of concrete things. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I don't think I, he really is necessarily
0: interested in lore per se. I think he's right. more interested in like creating a, a vibe. Right. Like, I think he enjoys building a world, but I agree that like his aspirations are not usually super literary so much as they are. Like, I think, I think most of the time he's more concerned with feeling like he has faithfully like continued the tradition of the genre that he's playing in, as opposed to having any kind of sort of like, lofty artistic goals per se, which I feel like kind of underplays.
1: Create a a consistent mythology in the way that like, I don't know, like a George R. R. Martin. Like, I don't think he's interested in that kind of world building. Well,
0: it's funny you say that because he actually cited game of Thrones as an inspiration for fatale. Um, not so much in the, like building such a rich world, but he was talking about how, like, uh, he, he outed himself as a total casual. He was talking about how he was reading it because like the TV show was starting and he was like, wow, POV chapters groundbreaking. Um, and so and so he was basically saying like I wanted to try and do something like that with Fatale and kind of like let each chapter not not that like every single book is from a different person's perspective per se but I think he was more interested and I think this would bear out in like kind of looking at the criminal stuff we talked about he was more interested in like putting the point of view in different characters as things unfolded which he always did in criminal over like between arcs he would he would switch but much more so like we talked about how cruel summer does like literally do every issue is a different point of view right. it feels like it was around this time that he started to get more malleable in terms of like i'm not just going to have like the one fixed point of view character for this story i'm going to move around a bit i'm going to show other people's like perspectives on things perspectives on events And I think that that really helps humanize Josephine because, again, I think that if it was all from the perspective of like Hank or Walt, then it would be a lot harder to effectively subvert the femme fatale. But the fact that she is also one of the perspective characters um, and that like we get that insight into like what she's thinking, what she's feeling, kind of like what these twists and turns mean for her means that she does have uh, an additional depth to her that would otherwise have been, I think, very difficult to infuse.
1: Yeah, especially when so much of the book is about how characters relate to her and things like that. I think it's important that you see a variety of perspectives in order to sort of paint a, a more complete picture. Because like you said, if it was just Hank or Walter would just be like, I'm obsessed with her.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, like to go back to the world building, like I wouldn't compare him with Vaughn, who I feel like it kind of was like the definition of the, like the, you get it brand of world building. And like the, the, like I'm really more so, or, or like entirely focused on creating the vibe as opposed to making any kind of like cohesive, world that makes sense if you think about it for more than two seconds like i don't think that Baker is like i'm gonna build like a westeros level universe for fatale where like you know there's all this stuff that is going on off page that it, like is affecting like the geopolitics of the world or like the you know the the um pantheon of like these gods that's chasing her is so like developed or whatever i do think that he's more on the kind of vibe end of the spectrum but it's it's like yeah like i just think about this again compared with the private eye a book that i like but the world building in that is sometimes just like complete nonsense <laughs> sure whereas like in this I mean, he's I, also not building an entire fictional world. He's it's just... true. And and a lot of it is still kind of like resting on the like, it's beyond our comprehension or like it's shrouded in mystery. So right. it, maybe it's an unfair comparison. But I do think that he his his interest in the vibe again is not because like he's like, I have this story I want to tell and it would be fun like flavor for it to have a noir vibe. It's because he's like, I have like this noir story that I'm telling that I want to be like faithful to the tradition of noir. And I want to give it these horror elements that will feel like classical horror. And so when I'm building the world, I want to successfully capture the vibe of those things because they're kind of like essential to being like true to the genre, if that makes sense.
1: Right. Yeah. And I'm also thinking about, um, I don't know if we're going to cover it, but I'm thinking about Too Old to Die Young. I'm so interested in knowing like what the process was on that, because that is something that is so low on like, you know, it's a Nicholas winning reference project. So it's like low on plot, low on exposition, Mm -hmm. low on like taking any kind of pain to explain itself and more just like plopping you inside like an aesthetic area and sort of inviting you to like or or not even just being like this is what this is and <laughs> you can sort of try you can try and parse it from what I'm presenting to you but I'm not going to like give you the book on what's going on mm-hmm. and so you know it's interesting because I saw someone talking about Tool to Die Young and they were like it's taking away everything that like is great about Brewbreaker, and I can kind of understand why someone would arrive at that conclusion. Mm-hmm. But I do also feel like there probably was something that appealed to him about working with Refin, who is someone who is so fully motivated by aesthetic yeah. and so unmotivated by like plotting or lore or putting together any kind of coherent
0: mythos into it. Yeah, I did read an interview with him. I think it was probably for the last Criminal episode um, because like Tooled was around sort of the time that he was also doing like Criminal Volume 3 basically. And in it, he basically said like, loved working with Nicholas, love Tool to die young, like see it, it was like a once in a lifetime experience. I'm very proud of it. And, like, as time went on, it really did become, like, more Nicholas's kind of thing. And that's just sort of, like, what happens when your co-writer is also the director of the project. Like, they are they are ultimately going to end up with kind of a louder voice in the project and, and leave more of a mark because they are both writing and directing it. Whereas, like, you know, I was there to write. I right. wrote. I'm, I'm very proud of it. I think, like, so basically, he was saying, like, it, there really is like more of of Refn in it than there is of Brew Baker. So, not having seen it myself, I think that that does probably speak to some of the ways in which it would feel like kind of the Brew Bakerness of it all might feel diluted, if not fully like <laughs> absent. I <Ended> certainly, th- <laughs> <laughs> I certainly think that
1: like. I wouldn't, if you were, like, even if you were, like, this was co-written with a prominent comics creator, he would probably not be, in like, the first ten names that I <laughs> wrote. But, like, I mean, like, it's Refn. Refn is such a stylist and so sort of aesthetically distinct that it would almost be impossible for anyone to, like, make their mark on one of his projects, I feel mm-hmm. like. Even if Baker had written the whole thing, like, it just would not have ended up being whatever his Death Angel miniseries is called. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, but, but, you know, like, I do feel like it's, it's interesting to sort of think about the way that his work exists in relation to that project, which is like, like I said, very, very far on one end of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. You should watch it. It's crazy. It is also <laughs> I have heard that it's crazy it is also like an immense slog like i think it <laughs> took me like probably like 6 months to watch it
0: <laughs> because it's like
1: 10 movies basically
0: um but it's really good yeah i mean it certainly is is a marriage of two creators that i like so who knows maybe maybe we'll talk about the first episode as a uh, sure a bonus a, or, or a, a bo- or should,
1: um, there is one episode that I think would work well in terms of sort of being almost a standalone noir movie. I, uh, he, I, I think Refn has famously also said like, you can watch them in any order, <laughs> which is like absolutely not true, but is like a funny thing to say. Um, and then I think I think this is the one that like got screened at uh, I forget which film festival, but I think one of the episodes. was was screened at a film festival and it was the one that I think would be a good one
0: for us to watch. All right, maybe we'll do that one. Um, But to return to the comics, I was just seeing something that he said that I was thinking about, um, that Brubaker said this is, that I was thinking about earlier today, which is that at this point in the collaborative process slash this is something that I think they have been doing for a long time, the way that Phillips gets his like script is like a few pages at a time or even sometimes like one page at a time so he rarely has the full script to work with when he is doing the art which I thought was interesting because again like I don't think that Baker is a super literary writer in the sense of like he's really interested in like um you know, let's let's have these recurring motifs. Let's have like, you know, here's it. Here's going to be like a major theme that I want you to like somehow capture or communicate about in the visuals. But even if Phillips wanted to do that, that it seems like a system that makes it hard to like plan for, I guess, like using the art to tell the story in any way beyond like kind of strictly the narrative function. You know what I mean? Right. Which I just, I thought was interesting. And again, it might be that like Phillips just is not really interested in being part of the, the like storytelling collaborative in that way that like really being the, the actor, the choreographer, the cinematographer, et cetera, is where his right. interests lie. But I, yeah, I just thought it was interesting because sometimes those recurring images can be quite powerful. And he just like doesn't really ever get the chance to do that because of the way they work.
1: Yeah, I think I think that's true. And I I do, you know, I don't really know that much about Sean Phillips. I wouldn't claim to. Um, but I I do get the sense that maybe he is like more more craft minded than Brubaker mm-hmm. is. And so he is maybe happy to sort of let Brubaker take the the story helm and then he sort of. Is you know because I think he does have a huge role in crafting an aesthetic in all of their mm-hmm. books, yeah. Um, and so that's like he's like I'm I'm by no means am I anonymous on the, these projects, and so like, certainly not. I'm putting
0: my stamp on it just in a different way than Brubaker Baker puts his stamp on it. Yeah, and it's like it is interesting because he often Brubaker often talking about Phillips refers to. You know what what Sean likes to draw where like for example like people will often ask like you guys do a lot of crime comics are you both huge like crime movie fans crime fiction fans blah 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 and he's always basically like I am obviously Sean like isn't really that into that stuff he just like likes to draw that stuff. Um, right. That makes and, sense to me. And and like when he was talking, so like one of these interviews asked him basically like you've worked in like all these different genres, like doing genre work is something that you both obviously enjoy. Are there other genres that you haven't gotten to yet that you like want to play around in? And he's like I would do like a post-apocalyptic thing, I would do a western thing. Um, like, lists out all of these, all of these different, um, you know, genres that he's interested in, and then is like, I don't know if we'll ever do a Western like Sean doesn't really like drawing horses. <laughs> 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 where where, again, it is like sort of like, I do think that he Phillips like brings a lot to the table in terms of being such an effective visual storyteller, being an excellent, Like face actor, uh, an excellent kind of like expressionist, I guess you might say. Uh, But he doesn't seem like it. it, Yeah, I think that like kind of casts a light in terms of like Brew Baker is the guy who's like, I love these genres. I want to play in these genres. Phillips is more so either like that sounds like a lot of fun. I would love like helping to create the tone for that book and to like tell that story. Or he's like. I don't like drawing horses, so I would rather not do that. (laughs) Which is like not to diminish his role in the collaborative partnership, but, uh, you know, I think we've talked at various points about how like it really varies from creative team to creative team, kind of what sort of voice the artist has in terms of like telling the story beyond those kind of like panel to panel, Mm -hmm. beat to beat decisions. Phillips does strike me as a guy who, really mostly derives the pleasure from telling the story, like j- telling the story that the writer has written, if that makes yeah, sense, no, as opposed I, to like helping to write the story. Yeah. I think that that's absolutely true. And I absolutely agree. A words.
1: Lots. Is that true? Replete. Yeah. 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 Uh, let me just pull it up here quickly. I know the one I have here is, uh, Dave Stewart, as he, who you previously mentioned, wins the Eisner in 2013 for... Or may, maybe this is the wrong episode to be doing this, but I don't care. No, it's right. Yeah, you're good. For Batwoman... Oh, he did Batwoman. That makes a lot of sense. Batwoman, Fatal, Bippard, uh, Conan the Barbarian, Hellboy in Hell, Lobster Johnson, and The Massive.
0: Lobster Johnson, another book that does a great job of using pulp like aesthetics to really give some tone to a story but um so i guess not a lot of wins actually now that i'm looking at it but Lots of nominations, which were for Best Continuing Series, Best New Series. Baker got a Best Writer nomination, which I think he actually did win that one. Sean Phillips got a Best Penciler slash Inker nomination and a Best Cover Artist nomination. Of those, I do think there were some wins now that I'm recalling slash backtracking on myself here. And I'm going to look up what they were. I'm looking at the thing
1: here, and I'm not seeing any wins. It just lists. Uh, it just lists Brubaker as a, a nomination, All right, or whatever well, that's worth.
0: Possible pie in my face. Now see this, I, I I need a full. I need a full list of winners here. <laughs> Let's have a look. See. Oh, you know what? I forgot that we're in the saga years. <laughs> 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 sure. Yeah. In 2013. Uh, yeah,
1: it's winning best continuing series, best new series. Yeah, yeah. That does explain that best writer, things of that nature.
0: Yep. The score coming up big here, though. <laughs> Shout out to the score, Richard Starks Parker, comma mm-hmm. I mean colon colon. Yeah, Richard Starks Parker's colon. Am I right? <laughs> So yeah, I guess I guess only the win for Stewart, but lots of nominations, but beaten out by the meteoric rise of Saga, and which you know I won't contest Saga, especially in that first year as uh, as the winner, certainly. Yeah, I mean,
1: I think we, <laughs> I feel like I've spoken up in our Saga <laughs> episodes on my
0: feeling about Saga, so it it really is like, yeah, not to rehash the whole conversation. Fatale is really good. I don't know that it's so good that I'm like, it's a crime that Saga won over Fatale. No. And I do think that those early, like the first year of Saga is probably some of its best stuff. So
1: it does also make sense from
0: that perspective and again it is more so like it's one of those things where it's like it gets crazier the more times it wins that it's like still still saga huh like we're (laughs) again it's good we we like it but yeah i guess like and i think we've talked about
1: this but like i guess i just i wasn't in the i wasn't in the mix at the time that this was (laughs) happening so like (laughs) it's just weird for me to think about like people getting so excited about saga well, i don't know at any rate cheers to saga
0: <laughs> enjoy those cheers to saga put those trophies on your mantle brian yeah we'll be coming back for another 18 episodes of or another 18 issues of saga before we know it so true king i think i think they're already like they definitely finished the first story arc since they came back they might be well into they the second be, at yeah. this point
1: i'll bet it's well i was gonna say i bet it's good but i don't know <laughs> i bet be it's good, good. There's a, I'd, I'd say it's definitely more likely that it's good than it, that it's bad. Definitely. Um, <laughs> at any rate, that will have to do it for this episode. Thank you all for listening. Please give five stars, review, etc. Anywhere where you get your podcast. Um, I, I said podcast because I assume you only listen to this one. <laughs> I know uh, I do. Got the Runs pod on Twitter gottherunspod at gmail.com listen to high floor low ceiling some great episodes coming out with uh all the sports being played right now that sounds like a joke shout out to Kyrie Irving (laughs) huge 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 but yeah I think that will do it for today next week we are covering Fatal issues 12 to 24 so until then
0: to To be be continued. continued on Tubi. I just watched something on Tubi today. Was it Paul Akebeck? No
1: spoilies.
0: <laughs> That's a little tease for those